Well, this past fall, uh, we, our family had, had finally come to a goal. We had been working pa- for the last two years, and that was hunting with horses. And, and the day finally came that we were going to actually use our horses to go hunting. And I know I've told a hunting story two out of three Sundays. That's abnormal. Don't worry, I won't continue telling hunting stories. I'll write a book instead on it. I don't know. Uh, but this morning uh, that we, we took off started smoothly. We got the horses loaded up quickly in the dark. Uh, we were two hours before light getting going, and everything was going great. We started up the mountain road towing the horses, uh, steep climb, but everything was working as it should. And it seemed like we were the only ones going up there that morning, which I was extremely hoping for. That's why we left so early, because there was really only one good hunt from the end of that road. We were driving all the way to the end. And if somebody was there, the only other option was a short little hunt the other direction, which really wasn't worth it uh, for all the work of getting the horses up there. And right before we got to the top, my newly installed transmission overheated. That was a bummer. And then when we got to the end of the road, somebody was already there. That was an even bigger bummer to me because it was an hour before light. And I'm thinking, what in the world does a guy got to do around here to get to a hunting spot and beat other people? Some of you feel my pain there. I was starting to get mad. My transmission had overheated, so something was wrong with my transmission. Somebody was already there where we had plants, so now we could only do a short little hunt. Uh, but since we were there, we had the horses, we saddled up and began to get ready to ride out. And we were almost ready to go when we hit a problem with our scabbards and getting our scabbards attached to the horses, delaying us even further. And so by the time we got on the horses and got riding, my heart was grumbling and complaining. I was not in a great place in my heart. And it was a beautiful morning, as you can see here from the picture. If Paul, you can click on that so it'll work for me. Uh, I had a picture. If it'll come up. If it comes up. Hopefully not. I have like 50 slides today, like way more than normal. So I need this to work today. Uh, normally I have like 27 to 30. Uh, there we go. All right. Thanks, Paul. Uh, so it was a beautiful morning. But all I could dwell on was everything that was frustrating about the morning. The road that we were hunting on turned out to be pretty pointless. It was kind of a wasted hunt. And then when we got to the end of that road, we ran into another hunter that had come in from the other side, meaning we couldn't keep going that way. So we just had to turn around. And my complaints began to to leave the confines of my mind and drip off the portal of my tongue. And that powerful member that we saw from James 3 two weeks ago began to do its damage. And soon, my complaining soured my wife and daughter's experience of a long-time dream of hunting with horses. And at this point, I just couldn't wait to get back to the truck, get the horses loaded, get the truck home, hopefully without it blowing up, and sit and watch the Grizz game. And then as if God just wanted to put an exclamation mark on my morning, 50 yards from the truck, For some weird reason, my horse spooked, and I came off the horse, landing on my shoulder, and I was just laying there on the ground and looked up at the truck right in front of me, and by that point, I was just boiling with anger. I was so mad. I hadn't come off a horse in 17 years, and and it just gave me something else to complain about. It turned, my complaining turned a less than ideal day into a miserable day, and so later I had to ask my wife's forgiveness and Kate's forgiveness Complaining is a poison. It affects our soul. It affects our perspective. It affects our fellowship. And it affects our relationship with God. And and as we continue this short series on the tongue, I know it seems like we have come to yet another fairly irrelevant topic that no one really struggles with. Distant place of little temptation. An area that is rarely entered into by us. But if we're honest, we struggle with this issue. So let's turn in our Bibles to First or Philippians chapter two, verse one. And I want to our, our main text is going to be two fourteen, but I want to start in verse one so that we have a full context of this verse because it's very important to understand the setting in which this passage is placed. So Philippians chapter two, we'll begin in verse one. This is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thus making this God's holy word. Paul writes this, If there is any consolation in Christ, 
if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining or disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Now, it's important to understand the context of Philippians 2. The context of Philippians 2 is unity. Uh, Notice how, so far, all three texts we have looked at that speak of the damage of the tongue are set in the context of unity. And, And I think this is because our tongues are masterful at disrupting and destroying unity, whether that be in the church, in a marriage, or a friendship. The overarching command of chapter 2 is fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And then Paul goes on to state, look out for the interests of others. That is to be our focus because our default is to do what? Focus on ourselves and what we want and our desires. And then Paul gives the example of Christ. Christ is our example. Though he shared glory with God the Father in heaven, he humbled himself to the point of death to die die on the cross for our sin. And Paul puts it this way. He was obedient even to the point of death. This is our example of not living selfishly and instead living loving others. It's Christ. But as obedience is the theme of chapter 2, Christ also is our example of obedience. And what Paul is saying here is if Christ obeyed God even to the point of death, where does that leave you and I? And thus, we are to live in obedience even in the hard things. And and sometimes we think obedience is merely like don't get drunk, don't have an affair, things like that. But what about obedience with our tongue? What about obedience with our tongue? Because of what Christ has done for us, we should live in obedience, which then leads Paul to say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, how do we do that? By continually believing in God and entrusting ourselves to him through our obedience. That is central. This whole issue of work out your salvation, obedience is central to that. That's what it means. Obey God. And yet, Paul then goes on to say, our hope is not in our obedience, but in God's work in us. Look again now at 
verse 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God works in us to enable us to obey. And that's where our hope is. In fact, Paul began this book with verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's the hope. God will complete it. And thus, in that context, as we work out our salvation and trust in God's work, Paul then comes to verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing. So the first point you have on your notes here this morning is stop complaining. Now, why would Paul state that in this context right after work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you for his good purpose? Well, the answer is because as we strive for unity, as we wrestle with obedience and experience God at work in our lives, we are tempted to complain and to grumble. And complaining disrupts unity, leads to disobedience, and hijacks what God is striving to do. And so we could put it this way, complaining is the enemy of unity, obedience, and submission to God. Complaining is the enemy of unity, obedience, and submission to God. It disrupts all of that. This is a command from God's word to stop rebelling against what God is doing. Rather than complain, we are to work out in our lives what he is working into our lives. Meaning everything we experience in life comes from the sovereign hand of God. Now, what does this word complaining mean? It's very important we understand this. The word complaining means to be displeased with what is in our life, with what has come into our life. Some of your translations may say murmur or grumble, but here's the root meaning of the word, which is very critical for us to see. The root meaning of complaining is displeasure. You are not satisfied. You are unhappy. And so in our displeasure, we complain, we murmur, and we grumble. We are not pleased, and we begin to complain with our tongues. We are not pleased with our spouse. We are not pleased with our church. We are not pleased with our health. We are not pleased with our children. We are not pleased with our circumstances. We are not pleased with the weather. We are not pleased with the election. And so we complain, expressing our displeasure, making our pleasure, our desires, the supreme thing in our lives. We should have the things the way we want them, when we want them, how we want them. But then it gets worse. For the complaining turns into disputing. Look again at verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Interestingly, the root of this word disputing means to doubt. It's doubt. That results in separation. So complaining, I'm not pleased. And this disputing, I'm doubting and I'm pulling back. That's what this means. This is more than just grumbling about the weather. These are serious heart issues. We begin to doubt and separate that from what we doubt. We doubt our spouse. And so we begin to pull back from our spouse because we are displeased with our spouse. Our spouse has not measured up to our standard. We are un happy with how the church handles something, and so we begin to doubt, and we begin to pull back. We begin to doubt our children and pull back away from them because they are not pleasing us at that moment. They are not measuring up to the standard we have set for them. But ultimately, we doubt God, and we pull back from Him because we are not pleased with Him at that moment. And we begin to pull back. 
I see this over and over and over again. We begin to question the holy God of the universe, and we begin to rebel against him. And so the obedience we have been called to throughout all of chapter 2, we begin to shy away from. Because we would rather do what we want to do than what God wants us to do. Because that takes humility. That takes dying to self. And so we began to do our own thing and we doubt God and doubt that his way is truly perfect. And, and here's the bottom line. And this is the, this is the gut punch, so to speak. The most convicting thing. When we complain, we are stating that Although we may say with our mouth God is good and perfect and wise and loving and sovereign, we are actually not believing that in that moment. He is not good enough and has not been good enough for us. He's making a mistake. We don't like what he's doing. And so here's the point. All of our complaining and grumbling is really complaining and grumbling against God. It's complaining and grumbling against God. This is why Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs stated that complaining is the most repulsive state of being. Think about that. When you are complaining, it is the most repulsive state of being. He went on to write this. As contentment reveals much grace in the soul, strong grace, beautiful grace, so murmuring, that's complaining again, remember, reveals much corruption, strong corruption, vile corruptions in your heart. Now, Why would he say that? Because of what Jesus said in Luke 6 that we looked at a while ago. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you are complaining, when I am complaining, we are saying, God, you are not good enough. It's revealing vile corruptions in the heart. What are the areas in which you are tempted to complain, to grumble, and argue? I firmly believe that it should not rain between November and March. And I think I have the Spirit of the Lord on that. And so when it began to rain on Christmas Day and we had 15 inches of this beautiful snow at my house and I'm watching it just turn into a soggy mess, guess what I was tempted to do? Complain. Grumble. God has made a mistake. He accidentally sent rain. Now that's humorous. But how about other areas? How about your spouse? Oh, how we love to receive God's mercy and kindness and love. And then complain about our spouse. We disobey God by not extending to our spouse the love, mercy, and kindness we have received from God. It stops with us. We, we think God's mercy stops with us. We are not obligated to extend that. And so we complain about how our spouse does this or doesn't do that or should do this and, and shouldn't do that. If our spouse would just be how we want them to be, then our marriage would be great. But God has brought you your spouse with his or her personality, his or her strengths and weaknesses. And your complaining is not ultimately against your spouse. It is against the God who brought them to you. Or what about our children? Surely we as parents never grumble or complain about our children, right? Never. Oh, we do though, don't we? We complain that they don't have our motivation. They don't have our goals. They don't enjoy what we enjoy. They don't dress how we do. They don't talk like we do. And, and they sin. Didn't they know that our home was a sin-free zone? Except for us, of course. We complain, we grumble, and we doubt, and we separate. Remember, complaining and grumbling is the enemy of unity and obedience and submission to God. John MacArthur, writing on this issue, stated this, 
every circumstance of life is to be accepted willingly and joyfully without murmuring, complaint, or disappointment, much less resentment. There is no exception. That doesn't mean that we clap our hands and thank the Lord in happy joy when our child is killed in a car accident. But it does mean that we recognize there's more going on there. And so we do not complain and turn into resentment. So if complaining is so deadly, why do we do it? Well, there's three reasons, I think. The first one is this. We are not trusting God. And we don't want to hear that, but I think deep down we know it's true. Why do we know it's true? Just listen to yourself. How often do you spiritualize your complaining? Just think about it. We spiritualize our complaining all the time. But ultimately, when we complain, we are telling the perfect God of love, wisdom, goodness, and sovereignty, He's messed up. He's fallen short of the standard that we have set for Him. This is a major problem for Israel over and over again. If you remember when we went through the book of Exodus several years ago, they complained. They fled from Egypt. God led them out of Egypt. Remember all of the the amazing things God did to get them, the plagues and everything, get them out of Egypt. And they come to the Red Sea and they complain, God, you led us here to die. And then God parts the sea and they go through and the waves crash over the Egyptian army and they're on the other side singing and rejoicing. And what are they doing a couple days later? Complaining. God, you led us out here to die. And then we read six weeks later, Guess what they're doing again? They're complaining. Complaining again. We read this in Exodus 16. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So they're complaining against Moses and Aaron and their leadership. But notice what Moses says to them in 16.8. The Lord hears your complaints, which you make against not us, him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us. They're against the Lord. In Psalm 78, Asaph is writing and he's recalling all of the complaining of Israel in the wilderness. And writing on this complaining, he says this in Psalm 78, verse 21. Therefore, the Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also came up against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Do you see there what the heart of complaining is? Not trusting God and not believing in him. We may say we believe God and we trust God, but in that moment we're grumbling and complaining, we most certainly do not. Now, the second reason we complain and grumble is we are selfish. We want what we want and we think we should have it. As I said earlier, we live far more selfish lives than we realize, far more self-focused lives than we even know. We want our spouse to be how we want them to be. And we want our kids to be how we want them to be. We want our weather to match the mood for our day. And we want our circumstances to conform to our ideas. We're just plain old selfish. (laughs) And we view everything in relation to how does this affect me. How does this affect me? In Jude 16, we read this. These are the grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Who's Jude writing about there? He's writing about the ungodly, the condemned. And so if this is the mark of who God calls an ungodly person, wouldn't we want to run in the opposite direction of this? 
And yet, we complain just like the ungodly, just like the wicked. Paul Tripp, writing on this issue of selfishness and complaining and grumbling, says this, at the bottom of it all, what is wrong is that we want our own way. And in wanting our own way, we want to be sovereign over our little worlds, making sure that what we want is exactly what we get. Man, what a prayer it would be if we woke up in the morning and said, God, help me to not get anything today that I want. And help me instead to stop being my little sovereign king and to entrust myself to you. Oh, how that could change us. The third reason we complain and grumble is we lack understanding of the gospel. That's a blow to our pride, isn't it? Isn't it a little much like we're not trusting God, we're selfish, now you're going to bring in the gospel, aren't we going a little too far? Well, I didn't make that up. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Turn over to 2 Peter 1, 2. Keep a hand in Philippians 2. Go back six books or so, past Hebrews, James, 1 Peter into 2 Peter. We're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 2. Apostle Peter is writing here, and he says this, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So here Peter's telling us, we are given through the gospel these great and precious promises. We've escaped the corruption of the world, meaning judgment. And then he says, and God has given to us everything we need. Everything we need for life and godliness. We have all that we need. Now look at verse 5. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see what he's saying there? And complaining is completely contrary to all of those things. It's contrary to virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, kindness, love. Complaining is contrary to those things. And then Peter says these convicting words. Look at verse 9. He who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten he was cleansed from his old sin. You see, when we complain and grumble, we have lost sight of the gospel and we are having an area in our lives exposed of where we are not believing and trusting in Christ and the gospel. When we complain, we forget that God has given us everything we need through Christ. And yet, we are complaining, saying essentially, God did not give us enough. We are looking at 2 Peter 1 and saying, no, no, God, you have not given us everything we need for life and godliness. We want some more things. We are displeased. The glory of the gospel is not enough for us. Christ is not enough for us. We want more. We want God to do more for us than just cleanse us from our sin and make us righteous and close us in holiness and make us His child and an heir of His kingdom and eternity with Him. God, You need to do more right now. 
That's what complaining is doing. So that's why we complain. But what are the results of complaining? I think it's very important that we look at this. The results of complaining. Number one, we put ourselves in place to receive God's discipline. Going through a hard time right now, could it be that God is putting discipline on you? It's possible. Complaining puts us directly in line to receive God's discipline. How did God respond to the complaints of Israel? Look at Numbers 11.1 here on the screen. Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. For the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Now you would think that would be like, all right, we're not going to complain anymore. I don't want to get turned into crispy charcoal. But no, it happened again. Paul writes it to warn us in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 7 and 10. Now, do not become idolaters as some of them, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. God reacts to complaining. Now, thankfully, because of Christ, we are not destroyed, but God still disciplines. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 reminds us of this. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked for him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So the first thing is we put ourselves in a place to receive God's discipline. Secondly, we become discontent. Now there's a surprise. And yet, when we're discontent, we're shocked even though we've been grumbling and complaining. But we become discontent. We become increasingly dissatisfied with life. Tensions grow with God, with our spouse, with our friends, with our children. And as these tensions grow, so often what do we do? They're the problem, they're the problem, they're the problem, they're the problem. No, you're the problem. If there's tensions with everybody in your life, you're the problem, I'm the problem. And as we grow discontent, we complain more and more, and then depression begins to sink in, or anxiety, or anger, and despair. We are discontent because of our grumbling and complaining. Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 1, or 6, 6 through 8. Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. And we say, no, no, no. (laughs) I want some other things too, God. Or how about Hebrews 13, 5 and 6? Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now notice again the connection there between contentment and trusting the Lord. Contentment is rooted in trusting the Lord, relying on him. And when we are discontent, we are revealing that we are not trusting him. We are, not doubt, we are doubting him and not resting in him. Andrew Davis, writing about contentment, said this, actually learning the secret of Christian contentment is the mark of a fully mature Christian. Discontentment, then, is the mark of immaturity. The third thing, our faith is weakened. Our faith is weakened. As we have seen, grumbling and complaining is revealing a place or time we are not trusting the Lord, but instead doubting Him. And as we continue to grumble and complain, our faith is weakened. I like what Lewis Allen says when he's writing on complaining. He says this, complaining is spiritual poison. Whether we drip it over our own hearts or we splash it over others. And then he goes on with Proverbs, quoting Proverbs twelve sixteen: The vexation of a fool is known at once. I'm not happy. Fourth, we have a loss of joy. 
And just think about it. When I was complaining on our hunt with the horses, was my joy abounding and growing and flourishing? This day is just getting better and better. No, it was getting worse and worse. I was losing joy, and not only that, but then stealing joy away from my wife and daughter. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot stated this, The secret of joy is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. How convicting that is. Because so often we think, if I just had a different set of circumstances. No, the secret of joy is Christ in me. Fifth reason. Fifth result of complaining, we have a loss of witness. If you desire to see people come to Christ, the last things that should ever, ever come off your tongue is a complaining word. We can't say, you should give your life to Christ. Rah, 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 rah. Christ is not that great. That's what we're saying. Now, that's not me that says that. Look at Philippians 2. If you still have your finger there, this is what Paul says. Philippians 2, verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Why? That you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now notice this. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. See, the world is used to us complaining, people complaining. And when Christians complain, they don't see any reason to trust in Christ. It's just another person just like us. They're not shining as a light in the world. No, you look just like the world. I look just like the world. But when we don't complain and when we don't grumble, Paul says this, you shine as lights in the world. Friends, that should be a massive motivation to not grumble or complain. Because when we are grumbling and complaining, we are actually turning people away from the beauty of the gospel. Sixth result of complaining. There is a breakdown of the body, or you could put it this way, it harms those around us. When God led Israel to the promised land, and they're about to enter the promised land, they send in the spies, you remember this? And the spies come back and they say, there is no way. We can't take that land. God can't give it to us. Those people are giants in there. And then we read in Numbers 14, verse 2, And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation and said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. And then later in the chapter, in verse 27, we read this. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness all of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years older and above. You think complaining brought a little harm? Devastating harm. Andrew Davis, writing on contentment, in his chapter on complaining, says, when we murmur, complain, and whine, we are polluting those watching us. We are undoing any good that the Lord would have us to do. We are undoing that which God would have us do. And seventh, there's a loss of perspective. Loss of perspective. I don't know about you, but I can't hardly think of a better example in the Bible than Jonah. I mean, here's Jonah. He delivers the message of the Lord to the wicked city Nineveh, just as God commanded him to do. And then he waits Not for what God wants. What is he waiting for? What he wants. Fire and brimstone, baby, coming down to Nineveh and wipe it off the face of the earth. That's what he wants. This is his great plan. Instead, they repent, and the Lord doesn't destroy them. And what does Jonah do? He complains. God, that's not what I wanted. He sits in the hot sun, 
waiting, watching, thinking, well, maybe now that I've complained to God, maybe God will, oh, yeah, Jonah's right. I'm going to send fire now. And he sits there and he waits and he watches and God sends a plant to grow over and shade him. And we read, and Jonah was very happy. And then what did God do? Again, God disciplines the complainers. He sends a worm and he kills the plant. And then what does Jonah do? He complains. God, you killed this plant. And then God says this. This is the end of the book. Jonah 4, 10 and 11. God says to Jonah, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock. And then the book ends. But Jonah and his complaining and his desire to have his own way lost sight of the kindness and the mercy of God. He lost perspective. All he could see was what he wanted. He wanted God's mercy. He wanted God's kindness. God, give me the plant. But I'm not going to give that to others. He lost perspective. So what do we do? Well, I think the answer is clear in Scripture. We start speaking thankfulness. We take away the dripping of complaining and grumbling that drips off of our tongue and we replace it with thankfulness. So 1 Corinthians 5 or 1 Thessalonians 5:18, you don't have to turn there, it's up on the screen. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, there are not a lot of verses that come out explicitly saying this is God's will for you, but it is here. Give thanks in most things. No, in everything. This is God's will for you. That's hard, isn't it? Give thanks in everything. I don't want to give thanks in everything. That means I can't complain. (laughs) If I'm giving thanks, there's no room for complaints. I can't complain and give thanks at the same time. So this is hard. So we looked at what complaining is rooted in, but what's thankfulness rooted in? Well, first this, thankfulness is rooted in trusting the goodness, wisdom, love, and sovereignty of God. Hope you're starting to get those terms in in your head. The wisdom, goodness, love, and sovereignty of God. It's believing God. It's trusting Him. It's believing that God really is working all things for good. You know, we know this verse. This isn't a new one for many of us. Romans 8, 28 through 29. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, when we complain, we read this verse and say, no, God, you're not working everything for good. Keeping in mind that the good is being conformed to the image of Christ. And guess what? Sometimes being conformed to something is painful. It is hard. But if we believe that God really is doing this in our lives, it can draw us to thankfulness, even in suffering. God, I don't know why I had to go through that loss. But I will give you thanks because I know and believe you and your word that you are working all things for good, conforming me to the image of Christ. Second, thankfulness is rooted in being focused on living for the kingdom of God. Let's be honest. How much of our complaining is because something is hindering the kingdom of God? Uh Uh-uh. Something is hindering our little kingdom. We're complaining about that. And we're living for God's kingdom, though. We can be thankful. Because God's the king. (laughs) And he will accomplish his purposes. And we're serving him. And that king loves us. And so we can be thankful, even in difficulty. Third, thankfulness is rooted in love for others. 
Thankfulness is rooted in love for others. The more we grow in our love for others, the more thankful we will be. Paul, writing in Galatians 5, 14, says, For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When we truly love others, with the love we've experienced from God, thankfulness rises up in our hearts. Think about it this way. This is a very sobering thought. God has far more reason to complain about you than you have to complain about anyone else, yet he chooses to love you instead. God has far, far more reason to complain about you than you will ever have to complain about anyone else. And he chooses to love you instead. And he tells us, love one another like that. Next, thankfulness is rooted in understanding the gospel. The more we understand the gospel, the more we are overwhelmed with the goodness and kindness of God. He sent his son for us to cleanse us from our sin. Jesus gave his life for us. And we're moved to thankfulness because we're amazed at the grace of God in saving us. And anything else we might receive is just icing on the cake. Fifth, Thankfulness is rooted in contentment. Thankfulness is rooted in contentment. Be reminded again, 1 Timothy 6, 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can't carry anything out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Next, thanksgiving is rooted in obedience. This is... Work your salvation out with fear and trembling that we started with. We're commanded by God to give thanks in everything. The question is, will we obey God or not? And finally, thanksgiving is rooted in living with an eternal mindset. The flip side, though, is complaining is rooted in living in a temporal mindset a material mindset. But when we live with an eye on eternity, complaining becomes repulsive for us. It's repulsive because we're living with an eye on eternity. You see, when we reach heaven, we will enter a life where we will never hear a complaining word slip out of our mouths. We will never hear a complaining word uttered around us ever, ever again. A complaining thought will not even enter into your mind. Can you imagine that? That blows me away. Because we will see all that God has done. And we will see this is beyond marvelous. This is beyond amazing. God's grace is astounding. Two and a half years ago, Jess and I hiked up in Glacier together. We did this long 13-mile loop, and the pinnacle of the loop was the top of Sai Pass. And the last mile up the top was an absolutely brutal climb for me. Up this hot shale, the sun's beating down on us. It's the middle of the afternoon, peak of the heat of the day. The trail just switched backs on shale over and over again. I could feel my feet melting, the smoke seeming to come off of them. It was a hard hike for me. But finally, we reached the top, and we were met with this lush green, springs and cricks coming out of the ground from all over the place, flowers blowing gently in the breeze. And we just sat there for a long time in utter contentment. Here's a picture of it right in front of us. Just sat there for a long time. And it was one of those times where not a single complaining thought came into the mind just seemed all was right with the world. Basking in the cool air and the glory of God's creation. And once in a while, God in his kindness gives us a moment like that. And yet when we get to heaven, we will have moments like that stacked upon moments like that, stacked upon moments like that. Complaining will disappear. And in its place will be nothing but thankfulness as we rest in perfect contentment. Let's pray.
Father, this is an incredibly challenging topic for us to look at. Complaining really is a poison. It really is deadly. And, And we can trace complaining in your word from beginning to end. And we see that some of your swiftest, quickest, harshest judgments have come because of complaining. And we are commanded to do all things without complaining or disputing. And Father, we are so tempted to rebel against this. We want our way. We want to do what we want to do. We want people to to be who we want them to be. And we want from them what we want. God, we grumble and complain. God, I pray that we have seen clearly from your word that when we grumble and complain against our spouse or against our church or against our children or against our friends, against the weather, whatever it may be, we're actually grumbling and complaining against you. And we are saying that you and your goodness, sovereignty, wisdom, and love are falling short of the glory we have set for ourselves. God, may we be convicted here. Forgive us. I pray that we would fight hard against complaining, that we would see it for the deadly poison that it is. And God, when we catch ourselves complaining or when a loved one has the courage to confront our complaining, may we run to the cross, falling at the foot of the cross, recognizing that Jesus died for that complaining word that is actually in that moment displeasure with you. We thank you that we can cling to the cross of Christ. And that as John would write, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to cleanse us from our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for this truth. So Father, may we, instead of complaining, be people who are thankful. We're told to do all things without complaining, and we're told to do everything with thankfulness. In everything, give thanks. So, Father, help us to replace our complaining with thankfulness, that our lives would be reflecting the joy that we have in you, resting in you, trusting in the gospel, hoping in you, recognizing that Christ is all we need. We pray that you would do this for our good, for your glory, that we would love you more and love others better. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.